I love the song, The Old Rugged Cross. I, uh, I have a hard time singing it, though, because it reminds me of Jesus saying that if anyone would follow me, he must what? What does he have to do before he takes up his cross? Deny himself. I hate denying myself. <laughs> I'm just being real. Like, that's a hard thing to do, right? And so I love that last line, I'll cling to the old rugged cross. But if you're going to cling to the cross of Christ, you must first deny yourself. You cannot be selfish while you're clinging to the cross. And there's a painful freedom that comes when we deny ourselves. It hurts to get that tumor cut out, but there's freedom when it's gone. All right, when I was 17, I was in a stage play called The Diary of Anne Frank. I was a, a big-time actor in downtown Canton, Ohio. And uh, we did 17 performances. I played Peter Van Damme, who was this 16-year-old this boy who lived with Anne Frank in that annex for a period of time. And, and every single night in this play, I would appear to have in-depth conversations with Anne Frank. It would look like I was talking to Anne Frank. But let me tell you a couple things. I had a microphone on. Every single time I talked to Anne Frank, there were hundreds of people. We had sold out crowds almost every night at this, at this, for this show. There was hundreds of people listening, right, every time I spoke to Anne Frank. And I said the same exact thing to her every single night for 17 performances. So let me ask you, was I really talking to Anne Frank? I was talking to the audience. And that's appropriate because I was performing. So my suggestion this evening is that the devil wants you to see prayer as a performance. You will never think very clearly in, my, in your mind, I think prayer is a performance. But what you will do is have an insidious attitude towards prayer as if it is a performance. You'll feel like your prayer is a performance. And so in Matthew chapter 6, that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Starting in verse 5, Jesus begins some instruction about prayer. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They all go to a different church, right? You must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They wanted to be seen by others, and they have. Verse 6, but when you pray, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to the Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here Jesus says that the Pharisees pray as if prayer was a performance for people. They think about what other people are going to think, Right? When they pray, okay? And so Jesus begins his teaching on prayer by reminding us of this truth. Prayer is always only between you and God. 
Prayer is always only between you and God. When you pray, you talk to God. Hey, listen, the last thing the devil wants you to figure out is that when you're praying, you're actually having a conversation with the almighty God of the universe. He doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to believe that. And he's going to try to attack prayer very subtly in your life. And I want to say to you that, that we don't just make prayer a performance when we pray in front of other people. I think that we treat prayer as a performance when we refuse to pray in front of other people because we're afraid of what they'll think. Do you get what I'm saying? Well, I'm afraid of what you'll think, so I'm not, I'm not very good at praying, so I'm not going to pray in front of you. Well, who are you making your prayer about at that time? Is it between you and God, or is it about what other people will think? My challenge this evening is that we don't believe what Jesus says about prayer. How do I know this? Because most of our prayers, myself included, tend to be primarily a list of all the things we want or the things we think we, want, we need. But when you read Jesus' teaching about prayer, it, it's, it's important to ask for stuff you want, but that's just one little part, like, like one little part of what prayer is, and yet that's all we do when we pray. And so tonight we're going to examine Jesus' teaching on prayer. Here Jesus encourages us to go into our room and pray in secret. He's not saying it's wrong to pray publicly. We know he's not saying that because he prayed publicly and his disciples prayed publicly. But what he's saying is that most of your prayers should happen behind closed doors because behind closed doors there's no temptation to perform. There's only one person who's listening behind closed doors. Jesus continues in verse 7. This is such an important point. He says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Have you ever heard somebody pray and they say the Lord's name 57 times? <laughs> Dear Lord, thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer, Lord. I love you, Lord. Please help me, Lord. Be with me, Lord. As if God didn't know you were talking to him the first time, you know. He says, don't heap up big phrases because you think you'll be heard. What is Jesus saying? We don't just think prayer is a performance for people. Sometimes we think prayer is a performance for God. If I can say my prayer in the best way, in the right way, maybe God will pay attention to me. Like his attention will only be given to the best worded prayers. I want to tell you that this is an insult to God as if God doesn't already know you completely. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. When you come to God in prayer, you need to remember that God knows you. God knows you better than you know you. So be real with God. Be real with God. This is one of the stunning truths we see throughout the prayers in the Old Testament. There's this time where, where uh, uh, David is praying in Psalms, and he says, I cry out to you and you don't answer me. All of our enemies are saying you don't exist because you won't answer my prayers. He's being real. Moses, I love Moses. So Moses says at the burning bush, God, look, if, we go to, if I go to Egypt, the Israelites aren't going to believe me. Moses isn't, or the, the Pharisees aren't going to believe me, blah, 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 blah. So he goes 
He, he does everything God says to do. Nobody believes him. In fact, Pharaoh punishes the Israelites and says, now you have to make bricks without straw. And so then Moses goes to God in, in Exodus chapter 4 or so or 5 or 6 or something, and he says, you're not delivering anybody. He says, everything I said was going to happen happened, and you haven't done squat. I mean, he just lets God have it. And then God basically says, be quiet and do what I told you to do. But Moses is real. We need to be real in our prayers. Prayer is not a performance. And so then Jesus begins what one of the most famous portions of prayer. Uh, I'm sorry, one of the most famous portions of all scripture. And we call it the Lord's Prayer. And, and Jesus did not intend for us to pray the Lord's Prayer. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray the Lord's Prayer, right? But Jesus meant for this to be a model that we follow. Let me illustrate this way. My wife might think it's really romantic if I were to quote a poem to her. But what if all I ever did was quote the same poem to her all the time <laughs> and never said anything else? How long do you think that would, go, that would last? So the Lord's Prayer is okay if you recite it, as long as you understand and mean what you're saying. The primary purpose of the Lord's Prayer is to show us the things that ought to make up our prayer life, okay? And so that's what we're going to be examining tonight. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer and talking about how that applies to our prayer life. Jesus begins by saying this. He says, pray then like this. He doesn't say pray this. He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Always begin your prayer. Always begin your prayer by acknowledging God in spirit and in truth. Not just by saying his name. Let's examine Jesus' words a little bit more closely. Jesus first calls God what? Our Father. I love William Barclay, one commentator. He, described, he describes it this way. He says, and I quote, It might be said that the word Father used of God, listen, is a compact summary of the Christian faith. It might be said that the word Father used of God is a compact summary of the Christian faith. Here's what he means. If you get pulled over by a cop, is it going to make a difference to you if you find out the cop is your dad? Yes. So if there is a creator of the universe, if there is an author of life, if there is an almighty being that's in control of all things, wouldn't you want to know what sort of guy he is? And Jesus came here to say to us, let me tell you the kind of person God is. And there's one word that God wants you to under or that Jesus wants you to understand when it comes to God. God is your father. He uses it all the time. He's our father. And he says, "Listen, he's not like your earthly father, no matter how good or bad your earthly father is. He's your perfect father." This is how God sees himself. He sees himself as your father. And everything a perfect father does with regard to their children is motivated by what? God is love itself. When you choose to call God Father, when you choose to call God Father and mean it, there is affection and safety and trust there. You are my father. 
Don't let those words come out of your mouth without meaning them. He says, you, he says, our Father who is in heaven. This is significant because what he's saying is, you're not here. You're not an earthly father. You're a heavenly father, and that means you transcend us. You're outside of, right? You're above us. You're holy. If the word father means love, the word heaven means holy. Dr. David Block was a Jewish astrophysicist. I don't know what that is. Who became a Christian. When he was 17, he was inducted into the British Astronomical Society. I don't know what that is either. But it means he's smart. And when he turned 40, sometime in his 40th year, he came to Christ. In a presentation he was giving to a, a bunch of other astro-whatevers at, at NASA, he showed a picture of outer space from NASA. And in the picture he said, there were over 100 billion stars. So he showed one picture of a little section of outer space, and he said there's 100 billion stars in this picture. He said if you were to stand here today and count every star in that picture, one per second, you would be standing here for 2,500 years. And then he read the biblical summary of God's creation of the stars. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16. After it says he made everything else, it says he made the stars also. He made the stars also. How did God make the stars? And that's who you're talking to when you pray. When you say our Father in heaven, you're acknowledging God's almighty power. And it should be breathtaking. Ravi Zacharias, another one of my favorite preachers, he says in his native language of Hindi, the word for father is pita, and the word for mother is mata. He said, but you never call your father just pita, and you never call your mother just mata. You call him pita ji and mata ji. And the word G, as I'm sure all of you know, is a term of respect. So it's a lot like saying father, sir, or mother, ma'am. He says when we say pita or, or mata, we're acknowledging that there are parents and they love us and there's affection. But we add the G because after all, they are our parents and they're worthy of respect. And so when we pray, we say God our father because he's our father who loves us who is in heaven because he is holy and powerful and above us. And then we say, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Timothy Keller. It's a good thing I listen to other preachers or I have nothing to say tonight. <laughs> Timothy Keller says that when you say hallowed be your name, that word hallowed means that you want whatever it is you're saying is hallowed to be above everything else, right? Set apart from everything else. And so he says, when you say in your prayer, hallowed be your name, what you're saying is, God, may, you are so holy. You, are so, you bring so much wonder upon my mind that, that you're above everything else in my heart and my, and my mind. I can't think of anything else. <laughs> when you say hallowed be your name, you're saying, I'm so in awe of you. I'm more in awe of you than anything else. And so when I'm daydreaming, you're what I'm preoccupied with. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
when you begin to pray, wherever you're at, at church, at home, at work, in the car, anytime you pray, you're opening the door from your minuscule existence into the consciousness and attention of the great I am. You must begin every prayer by stepping away from the so-called solid ground of your human understanding and allowing yourself to be swept away with the almighty glory of God. You're stepping into his arena. You're stepping into his consciousness and you have his full attention and this should always be a big deal. Do you see why prayer is so much more than just a list of things you want from God? We must begin our prayers with awe and wonder and reverence and love and affection. Jesus then continues. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm a big John Wayne fan. That's not in the prayer. I just said that. When I was a kid, when I was about five years old, my dad said, we're going to watch the greatest cowboy in the world. And we sat in Lazy Boy together, and we watched War Wagon with John Wayne and Kirk Douglas. And ever since then, I've been a huge John Wayne fan. And when I was a kid, I used to dress up like John Wayne, and I looked pretty intimidating. I had a vest, and I had a sheriff's badge, and I had a pistol, and I had boots, right? But I want to tell you, I was not a very good cowboy. My gun was plastic. I don't think it could hurt you if I threw it at you. My badge gave me no authority. And my parents had to convince me of this every time I tried to imprison my younger brother. <laughs> and I was afraid of horses. <laughs> so, so I was a fake cowboy. I looked the part. But I was just a cheap imitation. And I want to tell you this evening that every kingdom that has come and gone from this earth Every single kingdom that exists today, listen, is a cheap imitation of the one true kingdom of God. They may look powerful. They may seem powerful. But remember what Jesus has already told us? The only thing they could take from you is your life. That's it. And if you're a Christian, your life has already been given away. I want to read you a quote from the late and great British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. He was an atheist for most of his life, and then he came to Christ after meeting Mother Teresa. It's a great story that he tells uh, in his, uh, his uh, biography. It's called The Third Testament. I highly recommend it. But this quote uh, is from him, and it's about Jesus, and it goes like this. It's lengthy, but it's powerful. He says, and I quote, we look back upon history, and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has written of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my own fellow countrymen in Great Britain, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world. Most of them convinced in the words of what still is a popular song that the God who made them mighty shall make them mightier yet. I've heard of a crazed, cracked Austrian by the name of Hitler announce the to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown, Mussolini, say that he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. 
I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin by the name of Joseph Stalin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as being wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, and more enlightened than Ashoka. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquests all in one lifetime, all in my lifetime, and it's all gone. It's gone with the wind. England, now part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini are dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin is a forbidden name in the regime that he helped to found and dominate for some three decades. America is haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep their motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charge the windmills of water gate all in one lifetime all in one lifetime all gone gone with the wind behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomatists there stands one gigantic figure because of whom by whom and in whom and through whom alone mankind may still have peace the person of Jesus Christ end quote When we pray, every time we pray, we must make a conscious decision to reject our own kingdom and the kingdoms of this world that will only last for a brief moment and commit ourselves to the kingdom of God. Submit to God's will. Someone once said that prayer is not about bending God to our will or convincing God of our plan. It's about growing into the form of his will. Someone once said that prayer is the act of throwing the anchor of our soul onto the island of God's will and pulling ourselves along his will as opposed to getting him to pull himself alongside of our plans. So let me ask you, do you believe what Jesus says about prayer? Do you pray in order to learn God's will for your life or to convince him of your will? for your life. In Gethsemane, you'll remember Jesus prayed three times. If there's any other way but the cross. If there's any other way but the cross. If there's any other way but the cross. But at the end of each of these prayers, what did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. This is what I want, God, but ultimately the thing I want even more is that your will would be done. Jesus continues. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Here we literally ask God to provide for our needs today. And this is significant. If you go to Walmart, you can get new tires, an oil change, a haircut, prescription glasses, groceries, money out of your bank account, and everything in between. You can even get a Subway sandwich, right? They get a lot of business because they want to be the one-stop shop. They want to supply all your needs when you ask God for your daily bread, you are saying, God supplies all your needs. Can you find it in yourself to believe that in God, you really have all that you need? But it's also you asking God to provide for your spiritual needs. The Bible tells us that man cannot live on bread alone, but on the very word that comes from God's mouth. Jesus said that his food was to do the will of God. When you ask God to give you your daily bread, you're literally asking him to give you marching orders for the day. Give me your word so that I can obey it. 
and you're saying, this is something that I need for my spiritual nourishment. Jesus then says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do you see the assumption there? Do you see the assumption? What is the assumption Jesus is making? That you've already forgiven those who've sinned against you. He doesn't say, make sure you forgive everybody in your prayer. He is assuming that it's already happened. That's a little unsettling, isn't it? Here Jesus is saying, ask for the strength to forgive and for forgiveness ourselves. This is so important that it is the only piece of the prayer that Jesus comes back to when he's done. He says later on in verse 14, and this is another very disturbing, unsettling thing Jesus says. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I wish that he had left that part out. And of course, this reminds me of an episode of I Love Lucy, where Lucy and her friend Ethel steal John Wayne's footprints. Does anybody remember this? This is classic comedy here. And so Lucy and Ethel steal John Wayne's footprints from the Hollywood Walk of Fame. They accidentally destroy it because that's what the kind of thing Lucy would do. And so Lucy's husband, Ricky, goes through all this trouble to get John Wayne himself to make a new set of footprints and a new signature that they could give back to the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And so John Wayne does all of this. Uh, he puts his feet in the cement. He signs his autograph up in Ricky and Lucy's apartment. And then he goes down to get his shoes shined when the ladies return, and this happens. Tell you what, as a John Wayne fan, that's a hard thing to watch, you know. <laughs> she called the authentic signature of John Wayne a fake, and then she covered it up. Here's what I want to say to you. Remember that when God forgave your sins, he didn't just say, you know what, I'm going to let this go. I forgive you. He paid a price in blood for your sins when he forgave you of your sins. When you refuse to forgive someone else, you are essentially calling Jesus' forgiveness fake and covering it up. It means you don't get what Jesus has done for you. And so Jesus very boldly says, look, if you're not going to forgive other people, don't expect me to forgive you. How can you pray when you're doing this? Every time we pray, we must be asking for forgiveness, and we must be asking God if there is someone in our hearts we have not yet forgiven. And we need to make that right. Corey Ten Boom, 
wrote a book called Tramp for the Lord. Corey Tim Boom uh, was a Christian in Holland who was uh, put into a concentration camp during World War II. She watched her sister die in the concentration camp. Her, her father, uh, elderly father, was killed because of his faith because they were hiding Jews uh, from the Nazis during the, during the war. And in the book Tramp for the Lord, she kind of tells the rest of her story. She has another book called Hiding Place, which tells of her time in the concentration camp. And, and Tramp for the Lord is her sequel. And I just want to read uh, an excerpt, a little story she shares in the book. She says, it was 1947. I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. When we confess our sins, I preached over and over again, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And even though I cannot find a scripture for it, I believe that God places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. The solemn faces would just stare back at me, not quite daring to believe what I was saying. There were never any questions after my talks in Germany in 1947. People would stand in silence. In silence, they would collect their things, and in silence, they would leave the room. And that's when I saw him working his way against the others. It came back with a rush. The huge room at Ravensbrück with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the, shape of a walking, of a, the shame of walking naked past this man who I now saw. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. That place was Ravensbrück. And that man who was making his way forward towards me in the basement of a church in 1947 had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards there. And now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out, a fine message for our line. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are in the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than shake his hand. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. He didn't remember me. But since that time, he continued, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there and held his hand out. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I'd had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remain invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. 
And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness, listen, forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of your heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the outstretched hand of this man. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, which says, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Jesus gives us one last piece to our prayer. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Every time you pray, pray for protection against temptation. Spend time praying particularly about those areas in your life where you are most weak. Maybe forgiving and holding grudges is something you struggle with. Maybe you struggle with alcohol or lying or gossip or gluttony. Pray about those things and ask God to guard you, to deliver you from those potential moments of weakness. I want to end our conversation tonight by addressing one last thing Jesus says about prayer in the next chapter. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says something that sounds good, but is a source of great trouble for a lot of Christians. He says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Why is this a problem for us? Because many of us have asked God to do things, and he didn't do them. Many of us have asked and we have not received, have knocked and the door has not seemed to be open. And so prayer is a hard pill to swallow. These days, many Christians are told that if they simply have enough faith and they're stubborn enough and persistent enough in their prayers, God will grant them whatever they want. I know someone who got a diagnosis for cancer and he was told he had it because he didn't have enough faith. But we know this is not what the Bible teaches. How do we know this is not what the Bible teaches? Because Jesus prayed for the same thing three times in Gethsemane. And what did God say to Jesus Christ? No. Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, please, not the cross. Please, not the cross. Please, not the cross. And God's response was, the cross. Do you think that was because Jesus didn't have enough faith? In 2 Corinthians, we see Paul praying three times, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that God would remove the thorn in his flesh. He calls it the messenger of Satan. What was this thorn in his flesh? We don't have any idea. Some say it was probably a physical ailment or disability that God refused to heal. 
Some people say it was a regular temptation that God refused to remove. Some say it was emotional or psychological problem like depression or anxiety or something else that God refused to take away. We don't know what the thorn in Paul's side was, and I think that that's on purpose. I think God wants us to understand that sometimes his answer is no. Or sometimes his answer is not what we think it ought to be. But rest assured, God's answer to Paul was not because Paul didn't have enough faith. So what did Jesus mean when he says, ask and it will be given to you? C.S. Lewis, see, if I didn't have Timothy Keller, C.S. Lewis, Corey Timboom, I would have nothing to say. C.S. Lewis says it best, as he usually does. He says that our prayers are most positively answered, listen, when we pray as God's fellow workers. Do you see what that means? If I'm praying as a fellow worker with God, what am I praying for? The things that God desires, right? If I pray uh, as, uh, I don't know, a preacher who wants to be successful, what am I praying for? The things that I desire, right? But if we pray with God's will in mind, that's when he starts to really provide. Jesus continues, after he does the whole ask and you shall receive bit, in verse 9 he says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Verse 10. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What is Jesus' point here? Jesus is saying, whatever happens in your prayer life, trust in God's love for you. Because God loves you perfectly, even when it doesn't seem like he is. If God loved me, he would cure my cancer. Not necessarily. What did he let Jesus go through? He didn't remove the thorn from Paul's flesh. If God loved me, he wouldn't have let my loved one die. Listen, everybody's going to die. Jesus didn't die on the cross to save your life. He died on the cross to save your soul. Trust in God's love for you. What do you need most in this life? You need salvation for your soul. Has God already done that? Listen, next time God doesn't cure what you wanted him to cure, next time God doesn't provide what you wanted him to provide, remember this. You will never have to ask God to send his only son to die a brutal death in order to pay the price for your sins. You will never have to ask God to send his only son to live a perfect life and then give you his son's perfection. And you will never have to ask God to make a way for you to heaven. Why? Because he already... ...and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul has reached a place where he is content in his weaknesses, where he no longer asks God to deliver him from the hardships. Do you see? Do you see how prayer transforms us or can transform us if we'll believe what Jesus says about prayer? Please stand. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for neglecting our conversation with you. Forgive us for not coming to the well.
more often. Forgive us when we're performing for others, when we're performing for you and not being real. God, give us a hunger and thirst for intimate conversation with you. God, we know that if we want you to do more than we can imagine, first we must become a people of prayer. So convict us and inspire us. Whatever hurdles stand between us and talking with you, God, I pray that tonight you would deal with those. We will forever pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said.